The most puzzling aspect of the Buddhist teaching is the understanding and the experience of selflessness. In Pali, the word is anatta. As we begin to explore what this could mean, so many different questions arise. Perhaps more than any other question that has arisen in this hall, it's the one that begins, if there's no self, who's practicing? If there's no self, who made, who's making effort? Who is reborn? Who experiences the consequences of karmic actions? If there's no self, who gets angry? Who falls in love? Who has memories? These are the questions that arise when we try to understand what selflessness could possibly mean. This understanding of anatta refers to that experience or realization that there is no one behind this process to whom it's happening. There's no I or self behind things. When people hear this, often there's a response or reaction of fear. Well, if there's no self, no I behind experience, maybe we imagine that in the realization of this, we explode into some kind of cosmic flash of something, or maybe vanish, you know, all of a sudden, poof, and like in this magic shows, and all of a sudden, (laughs) where did I go? But really, the deep understanding of anatta, of selflessness, is at the heart of the Buddhist teachings. It is the jewel around which all of the teachings revolve. Because it's really at the essence, this experience, this realization of selflessness, is the essence of a free mind. It's possible for us to begin opening to this understanding. This is not something that's far off. We can really begin to get taste, to get glimpses of what this means for us in our experience. And as our mindfulness and awareness get stronger, as, as we rest more continuously in awareness, we make some startling discoveries we begin to discover that we're not who we thought we were. That we're not the body. We're not the emotions that are arising. We're not the thoughts that are coming through. Begin to see that the entire sense of I, of self, is a mental construct. It's a mental fabrication. When we begin to see this, it's both a great surprise and also a great relief. I mean, just imagine what it would be like to actually be every thought that arises in the mind. (laughs) And if we actually were, that would be the problem. So tonight I'd like to talk about how the mind creates this notion of self, 
this notion of why, why it is that it's so strongly conditioned in us, and how we can begin to free ourselves from this illusion. When we talk of the mind, we mean the quality of cognizance, the quality of knowing. Now, this quality of cognizance, of knowing, is itself pure, it's open, it's lucid, it's invisible, we can't see it. Its nature is simply to know, to be aware. Aware of a sound, aware of a sight, a sensation, a thought, an emotion. The faculty of cognizance simply knows this clarity, this invisible lucidity. That's its function, to know. Mind also is more than just knowing. Because in each moment of awareness, in each moment of knowing and experience, there arises, along with the knowing, a whole assortment of different mental qualities, or what in Buddhist terminology are called mental factors. And these mental factors color the mind in a variety of ways. So, for example, when greed arises in a moment of awareness, when greed is there, it colors the mind and it makes it sticky. When hatred arises in the mind, that's a mental factor which is arising in a moment of awareness. It has the nature to condemn, to strike against. There's greed, hatred, love, compassion, kindness, fear. Long list of different mental factors, some of which are unwholesome, which means that they cause suffering. That's the meaning of unwholesome. And some mental factors are wholesome, which means that they are the cause of happiness. Okay, so there's the natural purity of the mind, which is simply knowing, simple awareness. And then along with this, in different combinations, come a variety of mental factors. Now there's one particular factor of mind which plays a key role in this very strong conditioning we have to be imprisoned in the concept of self, in the notion of self. And that is the mental factor of perception. Perception has a very defined meaning in the Buddhist psychology. Perception is that mental factor which has the function to recognize what the experience is. It picks out the distinguishing marks. So when it sees red and blue, it's the factor of perception which recognizes, yes, that's red, that's blue, that's man, that's woman. So perception recognizes what the object is, creates a concept to, descri to describe it, and then stores it in memory. That's the whole function of perception. When perception is there, along with mindfulness, 
And what perception does is frame the object so that we can see it more clearly and deeply. And this is exactly how the noting functions. The noting, the mental labeling, is not actually a function of mindfulness. The noting is perception. We use the word to recognize what the object is. In, out, rising, falling, hearing, seeing. We frame the experience with that perception in the service of mindfulness. We frame it so that then we can see it more deeply, more clearly. The problem arises when there is strong perception, that is recognition of what the object is, without mindfulness. Because then we recognize only the surface appearance of things. We create a concept for that appearance and then get lost in a web, in a tangled web of reactions, of impressions, of responses, of evaluations, of judgments, all based on our concept of what is happening. I'll give you an example. There are endless examples of this, because it's happening all the time. Last spring, I was sitting here on retreat uh, with Upandita. I was a yogi. I was in the dining room, and it's not clear in this course, but the tradition here at IMS is that when there is ordained sangha, monks or nuns, they go through the food line first, and then everyone else follows. Well, there was this one Westerner who was a nun, so she was going through the line, and I happened to be first on line after her, just happened to be. (laughs) 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 Having walked very mindfully to the lunch line. (laughs) So I'm standing there, and I'm watching her go through the line, and she's taking a huge quantity of food. Not only that, she has two plates. And I'm standing there watching her, and my mind is just, what is she doing? That's not very (laughs) nun-like. You know, I mean, she was just heaping up these piles of food. And not only that, not only did I think it was not very nun-like, she was taking a long time. You know, and holding up all of us yogis. So I'm standing there online, perceiving all this, getting lost in this whole web of thoughts and judgments. Then she finishes the line, and I see her walk over to a side table, and I saw that she was bringing food to a blind person who was on retreat. So then you can imagine what went through my mind. (laughs) This story illustrates both aspects of perception without mindfulness and perception with mindfulness. When I was just watching her and taking all the food, I was not noting seeing. I I had the perception, I recognized what was happening. 
It was a woman taking the food, a lot of food. I elaborated, you know, all of the thoughts and judgments about it, not noting any of it, not being aware that my mind was doing that. And so I got caught in this whole tangle. When I saw what she was doing, and then my mind, you know, had that kind of reaction to my own being lost and my own judgments, at that point I became very mindful. And so instead of spinning out in a self-judgment, which I could easily have done, I recognized, oh, that's just thoughts. I perceived it as a thought and was mindful of it as a thought. And the whole scenario dissolved. I actually was able to quite smile in my mind. We need to notice how this process happens with everything, with sensations in the body, with thoughts, with emotions, with sounds, with perceptions of people. When this perception without mindfulness, we recognize the surface appearance, we put a concept on it, and then get caught in this whole web of reaction, of judgment. The mind itself is clear, is lucid, is empty, the nature of awareness. When perception functions without mindfulness, that's when we get caught. When we don't observe and look and feel our experience very closely, there is one deeply habituated perception that most of us have that is the cause of tremendous illusion, delusion in our lives. It leads us to draw many, many inaccurate conclusions. And yet it's a perception that is commonly shared by all of us and by people in the world. The perception which keeps us from understanding what is actually true and which keeps us in bondage because of that is the perception we have and share about the solidity of things. We think that things are solid, that have some substantial reality. Now, and our language keeps reinforcing this. The way we speak, the way we use language reinforces it. In a book by a friend of mine, Crazy Wisdom, by Wes Nisker, he has an interesting section where he talks about our use of language and of how we use nouns, which we consider to be quite solid, on either side of a verb, which somehow we think is not so solid. And it is how we, how we see things, how we speak about things, as if the nouns have some substantial reality to them. As long as we're understanding and perceiving things in this way, it keeps us from a deep and penetrating understanding of impermanence. 
It keeps us from seeing the insubstantial momentary nature of all experience because we're under the illusion of the perception that things are solid, are substantial. We may know on an intellectual level that everything's changing. We may know that this is changing and this is changing and this is changing. But we have to see it directly for ourselves. We have to go from an intellectual understanding of it to a very direct and immediate and intimate seeing of it. We have to know it from the inside. Because this is what effects the transformation of our lives. When we really have the wisdom of the impermanence of things. So then we might ask, if everything really is insubstantial, is momentary, why do we live in this illusion of perceiving things as solid? Because it is our common perception. This happens or is conditioned for a variety of reasons. One reason is the rapidity of change. The change is happening so quickly that we can't normally see it. When you go to the movies, what happens? We go to the movies and we get absorbed in the story. We get lost in the story. That's the whole point of going to the movies. But really what's happening? It's separate frames of film moving so quickly, but we don't see it as separate frames. So we're caught in the illusion of it. One of the things that happens in the course of practice is the rate of perception, the rate of our seeing, gets tremendously refined. I call it NPMs, which are notings per minute, or noticings per minute. You know, in the beginning we're lucky if maybe we have 10, you know, in, out, hearing. But as we sit quietly, and just rest in awareness and let the attention get more and more refined, then the NPMs go way up. You know, we begin to see changes, infinitesimal changes, within a single breath, within a sound. It's not just one sound. So as our mind, our awareness gets more refined in this way, we see for ourselves, we're experiencing directly the non-solidity of things but we have to quiet down enough in order to really experience it. Otherwise, the rapidity of the change masks the impermanence. We also live in the illusion of solidity, of that perception, because we observe things from a distance. And as I mentioned the other morning, if we put any object under a microscope, a high-powered microscope, a whole different world would emerge. Something that seems so solid, so substantial, so unchanging. All of a sudden, we see it closer up 
under magnification, the solidity of that as a thing completely dissolves. We see that it was only an illusion in the first place. When we're observing from a distance, we often do not recognize the composite nature of experience. We just kind of take something in at first glance. We have a surface recognition, a surface perception. And we don't see that it's actually made up of a lot of constituent elements. A very um, good example of this is our perception of the body. How much of our sense of self comes from our perception of the body as being something more or less solid? Now, it's often our first response to the question, who am I? Oh, this is who I am. No, this is me. There are some very interesting ways to unpack this illusion. Now, probably many of you are familiar with uh, sort of laser surgery. And especially some friends of mine have undergone uh, this kind of surgery of, to remove fibroid tumors. And it's quite amazing. They don't, they don't actually cut you open. They just go in with a tiny little incision and work through a laser and a video. So the doctor's actually watching the screen, you know, and cutting away uh, the fibroid tumor. And they make videos of them, of the operation. So you can actually see what's going on in the inside of the body. Well, it's quite amazing. I mean, you're in there seeing, you know, the organs and the flesh and the this and the that. That doesn't look like me. You know, there's not much identification with organs. But what happens? You know, there's a nice skin over all of it, and we don't really look too closely. And so all of a sudden we've created this concept of body, and this is who I am, this, this is me but only because we really haven't looked. We haven't dissected. You know, not so many people are drawn to do that. <laughs> There's a very interesting Buddhist meditation. It's called the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. You know, and not in as uh, detailed a way as laser surgery, but still in a way that really changes our perception of the body it's a recitation of 32 different parts. Uh, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, flesh, bones. I forget exactly the whole list. But you keep repeating these, visualizing each part, until we begin to see, yes, this is actually the constituent elements of what we call body. And it really frees the mind from attachment to this concept begin to relate to this in a very different way. I'd like to do a little experiment right now. It's not surgery. 
<laughs> Just right now, as you're sitting, if you could close your eyes and really intermeditative mode. And just very slowly move one of your fingers up and down. Really feel the sensations of the movement. Do it quite slowly so you can really connect with the changing sensations. Maybe there's a pressure or a pulsing or temperature, whatever. Now right there, as you're with that, as you're with those changing sensations, what happens to the concept of finger? There's no finger there. The experience is one of changing sensations, insubstantial, momentary, And yet, if you go up to anybody on the street and you say, do you have a finger? Oh, yeah. I had a finger yesterday and today and tomorrow. We live in the illusion of solidity, as if there is something solid, unchanging, that somehow is me or part of me or belongs to me. You probably wouldn't say, I'm pulsing, or my pulsing. We have to see how we create, in our way of perception, with our mindfulness, how we create this very strong notion of I. When we observe carefully the whole notion of body as some solid thing, some solid entity, completely disappears. And we begin to experience it as a process of interdependent changing elements. That's what's really there. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, we see, we recognize, and then we solidify the appearances through the use of concepts. We put a name on it and then take the name to be some self-existing thing. Tree, house, man, woman, car, bell, meditation hall, zafu, body. It's the endless list of how we describe the world. And for the most part, we are living in that world of perception, of concept. And it's because of that that we are very strongly affixed to this notion of self, of I. There are many other concepts which we create and have some use. But concepts which we create and then get attached to and then get lost in. A few examples. One of the most predominant conceptual frameworks of our lives are the concepts of past and future. We create concepts of time. 
and then we live in that world. But when we bring, bring mindfulness, a careful mindfulness, to our experience, what do we find? Something that is astoundingly simple and liberating. That all our experience of the past is as an experience or a thought in the present moment. We have certain thoughts or images, recollections, memories. They're happening in the moment. But what happens is we have them, we perceive them, we put a concept on them past, and then somehow throw them outside, this concept outside of ourselves, back there, as if the past is a reality. Back there, something solid, which we have to carry around on our shoulders. We do the same thing with future. It's amazing. We're sitting here, minding our own business, and these thoughts come of anticipation, just imagining, fantasizing, all these kinds of thoughts which we call future. We put a name on it, future, and then project it somehow, magically, you know, out there, as if the future is out there, waiting for us, waiting to get us. <laughs> but really, how are we experiencing it? We experience it just now in the moment as a thought. When we carry the weight of past and future around on our shoulders, it's huge. It's no wonder people are staggering through their lives. No, it is. It's tremendously to be carrying the whole past and the whole imagined future. When we see that in our experience, it is only arising as a simple thought in the moment, it becomes so light, so transparent. There's a very simple example of how strongly conditioned and conditioning are these concepts of past and future. There are many, many examples, but one that's timely in this context. I've noticed it often on retreat. Time thoughts about the retreat. You can be walking, lifting, moving, placing, and the thought may come, oh, another week. (laughs) How many more lifting, moving, placings do I have to do? Right in that moment, we have created the future of a week. With that whole emotional response, in that case of (laughs) unbearability, how will I manage, whatever. But really what's happening? What's happening is that there is a simple thought arising in the mind. Oh, one more week. That's all. It's just a momentary thought. If we see it as a thought... It's no problem at all. It's just so light. If we don't recognize it as a thought, if we get lost in the concept of future, which it creates, so then you're depressed for the rest of the afternoon. 
And this is a very trivial example of a process that happens often in our lives. And what's so amazing is that it is so easy to be free with it, and yet it is so often unseen. We're just not paying attention to what really is happening. We're getting lost in our own mental construct. The Buddha talked about, in terms of the development of the practice, he talked about dangers to concentration, or obstacles to concentration. And one of the big ones that he mentioned was this getting lost in past and future. And you know, you know how much of the day is spent lost in some drama or other, past drama or future drama. It's amazing, you know, just within one step, between one step and the next, how many worlds can be created? St. Augustine summed it up. He said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? (laughs) Where they are is right here. So that's one major concept that we get create and get drawn into with enormous consequences for how we're living our lives. It's really the difference between being burdened and being very light in the moment. It's another concept. There are many. I'll just sort of mention a few of them. In some way or another, we often buy into the concept of ownership which has to do again with our perception, perception of the solidity of things. Because we think things are solid, we also think that we can own them. Just an example of the conceptual nature of this understanding. You know, a few years ago, when sort of the Soviet Union broke up, uh, what struck me was, uh, I don't know if you remember from the news, but a lot of the... S- Soviet fleet was in the Black Sea, at Odessa. Of course, when it split up, that was now part of Ukraine. And so the people in Moscow no longer owned these ships. Did anything change in the ship? The ships were just sitting there. (laughs) They were just sitting in the sea in dock. Nothing changed in the actual reality of the situation, but some people's constructs changed. And of course, then they had a big battle of who owned them. You know, with all of these concepts, I'm not suggesting that they're not useful. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't employ them. We need to. This is is the way we relate in the world. The problem is when we get caught by them. We may think that we're not so caught by the concept of ownership. But how would you feel if somebody came in to the hall, if you came into the hall and you saw somebody sitting on your Zafo? There'd be a moment, probably. (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe even more than a moment. That's my space. There's a wonderful little story of Ryokan, who was an 18th century Japanese hermit, monk, poet, wonderful being. Said he lived in this little hut up in the mountains with very few possessions, you know, almost nothing. And then one day he came back to his little hut and he saw that everything was gone. You know, his cooking pot and his mat, and just the few possessions he had, had been stolen. So he wrote a haiku. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Imagine us coming back to our homes. Everything gone. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> because we are caught to a greater or lesser extent by this concept that actually we do own things, that they belong to us in some fundamental way. You know, it's a useful concept, but it does not express any, any real and true relationship. There's concepts of time, there's concepts of ownership, a lot of concepts around self-image. We create all kinds of self-images which become a real prison for us in our lives. A very popular one on retreat. Self-images of good yogi, bad yogi. You know, you have a good sitting, I really got this down. <laughs> you have a terrible sitting, you feel discouraged, depressed, I'm the worst yogi in the world, I'll never get it, I'll never learn. And we just create these self-images about our experience. And then we are constrained by them. Or images about other people. And it's, it's just so amazing to watch the mind do all this stuff. You know, you're walking behind a yogi who's walking very slowly. Just lift, move, place. <laughs> And you want to get someplace, and just the mind starts ranting. Why are they showing off? You know, <laughs> why can't they just walk like a normal person? <laughs> Half an hour later, you may be really into your practice, you know, and walking really slowly and carefully, and somebody races by you. Why can't they practice? Don't they know where they are? <laughs> We're making it all up. <laughs> it's interesting to really look in our lives at the self-images or roles that we buy into. You know? And there's a wide range of them. It could be the role of student or teacher or parent or child or boss or employee or whatever, hero, coward, you know, lover, misanthrope, 
They are all mental constructs, all mental creations. And to the degree that we identify with them, to that degree we're imprisoned. Now often we have images, self-images, around age. And especially in this culture, which has kind of a denial of the aging process. We have so many concepts around that. Well, let me ask you a question. How old is your breath? How old is a thought? How old is the pressure in the knee? Age is a concept. And yet it can so condition how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about other people, how we treat other people. When we're younger, we want to be older. When we're older, we want to be younger. (laughs) We need to see through all this. We really need to see through this proliferation of concepts in the mind. The last concept I want to mention is the core. It's the root. It is the root problem in our lives. The root cause of suffering. And that is the concept we have of self, of I, of me. The idea that somehow experience, all experience refers back to someone. I'm hearing. I'm seeing. I'm thinking, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. With each moment of our experience, we create this reference point of I, of self. Then we need to defend it, we need to satisfy it, we need to gratify it, we need to aggrandize it, we need to protect it. We need to do all of these things around something that is not really there. The great awakening in practice happens when we even begin to taste, begin to glimpse the fact that there can be the experience of things arising without having them refer back to anyone. Instead of doing this, we do this. Everything remains exactly the same. Thoughts are coming, sensations are coming, emotions are coming, sounds are coming. But we're not creating, we're not constructing, we're not fabricating a reference point. Everything is just what it is. There's a famous Buddhist teaching, encapsulated this wisdom, in the seeing there is just what is seen, in the hearing just what is heard, in the sense just what is sensed, in the thought just what is thought. Everything is exactly what it is. Can we rest in the simplicity of that without adding to it the notion of I, of self, of mine? It's all empty phenomena rolling on. That's the process. Empty of self, empty of I. Can we settle back, relax? into this process of empty phenomena rolling on.
There's nothing we have to do. If there really is no I, if it's a fabrication, if it's a concept, why is it so strongly conditioned in us? Our whole lives revolve around this notion, this idea. Why? How does it come about? One reason it comes about is because we have not taken the time to look carefully at the composite nature of our experience, which is what we're doing on retreat. Now we've taken a superficial look. We look in the mirror in the morning, yep, that's me. That's a very superficial recognition. That's perception without mindfulness. But as we sit in mindfulness, we begin to see that what we're calling self, what we're calling I, is a constellation of changing elements. There's thoughts and sounds and sensations and all the constituents of experience, moment after moment, arising and passing. So we begin to see the composite nature. We begin to see the rapidity of change of all these elements. As we settle down, as the NPMs go, go up, we understand that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. Yeah, that thought is me. <laughs> it's like we'd be continually lurching after something to try to hold on to it long enough that we could actually say, yes, this is who I am. Because we experience for ourselves the changing momentary rapidity of things. The second reason that this sense of self is so strong, even when we begin to differentiate all the constituent elements, when we begin to see all the different parts, there is still a very strong habit in the mind to identify with different of these elements as being I. We can see it with bodily sensations. It's like we personalize the sensations. There's a sensation of pressure. If we could stay right there, we'd be fine. Just awareness of the pressure. But no, the mind jumps in and right away creates a concept, knee. There's no sensation called knee. You don't feel knee, you don't feel back, you don't feel head. There's no sensation called these things. We feel pressure, we feel tightness, we feel heat. Okay, but the mind jumps in, knee. Doesn't stop there. Creates another concept on top of that, my knee. My knee hurts. I have to move. Just in that moment, we have built, we have built up this concept and strengthened this concept of I. When we're just on that level of awareness of pressure, There's no I, there's no self, there's no problem. The mind's very quick. (laughs) We really have to be very attentive to see how this is happening. Even when we're aware of passing thoughts, there's a strong habit to identify with them, to have the sense, I'm thinking. But that thought, 
I'm thinking, that I is extra. The thought is thinking itself. The thought is the thinker. When we're not in awareness, the habit is to identify with it, take it as being I, as being mine. Just a little exercise for you to do in the next sitting. With every thought that arises, imagine it comes from the person next to you. It's a very interesting exercise because it will change your relationship to all these thoughts. The thoughts will be the same. But instead of identifying with them, there'll be the sense of them just... Sylvia, stop that. (laughs) We'll be able to blame it on the next person. In the light of awareness, when we're really resting in awareness, it's amazing the change in our relationship to thoughts. We're just sitting. Thoughts come and go. They self-liberate. They have no roots. They have no home. They're just empty phenomena arising and passing away. The content becomes irrelevant. You can have the worst thoughts in the world. When you're resting in the awareness of them, they have no impact at all. Do you see how simple it is? But we need to be in awareness. That's that's the great secret. Because when we're not, when we're not in awareness, when we're not aware that the thought is there, so then all the old habit patterns come into play, we get lost in the thought, we get identified with the thought, then we have all kinds of self-judgments around the thought, and we just build this whole world, which is really a prison. We can see this identification process with sensations, we can see with thoughts, we can see with emotions. Different emotions come. Anger, happiness, sadness, and right away, When we're not simply in awareness, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. We take these emotions to be who we are. And then we're either elated or depressed or whatever. And again, the mind doesn't even stop with that. It doesn't even stop with, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. It builds a further skyscraper of self, I'm an angry person. So we solidify even further this notion of who we are. I'm a sad person. I'm an unhappy person. I'm a this kind of person. And all of that is fabrication. What's happening is that because of certain conditions, a certain emotion arises. That's all. The anger is angry. The fear is afraid. The love is loving. Each emotion is arising out of conditions, doing its thing, and passing away.
A little caution is needed here because sometimes people get attached to emotions from the other side, become identified with emotions, and that is, in the name of mindfulness, they might actually be pushing emotions away, not being open to feeling them, not being open to simply allowing them to come and being with them fully. That's not really mindfulness, although it could come disguised as mindfulness. The practice is to be completely open to whatever it is that's arising. Sensations, thoughts, images, sounds. We rest in awareness, let this display of appearance, display of phenomena arise and pass away. Everything is felt fully and completely. Suzuki Roshi used a nice phrase, this is, this is a paraphrase of it, but he talked about sort of burning, burning each experience completely so there's no residue. Being aware of each experience completely. So in the moment, it's completely experienced and finished. No holding on, no aversion. We can identify with sensations, with thoughts, with emotions. We can also become identified with consciousness itself, with awareness itself. So in the very practice of awareness, a deeper level of subtlety of practice is to notice how we might be creating the sense of observer, of witness. Well, I'm the one who's knowing all of this empty phenomena. You know? And so again, we're creating some notion of I, some reference point. When there's interest, when there's a strong interest and attention, we can begin to recognize and understand the empty nature of awareness itself. It is a great mystery, awareness. Now, I've been talking in some of the groups about this. We're doing the walking meditation, taking a step. Sensations are appearing. In the course of a step, sensations are appearing. It's like they're appearing in space and being known. Right? A corpse doesn't know anything. You could lift the arm of a corpse, it wouldn't know anything. We take a step, the sensations arise and are known. By what? What is it that is aware? When we look, we can't find anything. It's invisible. There's no thing which is aware. And yet, Things are known perfectly and exactly and spontaneously, not before, not after, in the very moment. Sensation arises and is known. Sound arises and is known. 
This is a very profound mystery that's happening in every moment. For me, this is where a great delight in the practice comes, just from (laughs) what is going on. We don't create this awareness. There's nothing we do to create awareness. And when you hear a sound, when you hear the sound of my voice or the sound of a bell or whatever, you don't decide, oh, I'm going to hear this now. The sound arises and is known in the moment. Just to be with this moment after moment, to to be experiencing how it's happening, so that it's not theoretical. We are really in that mystery moment after moment. That's how we begin to recognize this great mystery of the emptiness of awareness, the nature of awareness. So what are we doing here? Now we come and we spend this time in silence. It's such a wonderful time. The only thing we need to do is to be paying attention to this process of what's happening, of learning to see how the mind creates concepts about experience, then gets lost in those worlds, of how we can come back to the simplicity of just what is there. We see that what we call self, what we call I, is a process of changing elements. That there is no one behind them to whom it's happening. Chinese poem, uh, the last two lines of which are, we sit alone, we sit together, the mountain in me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain in me, until only the mountain remains. sit together in each moment of experience until only the experience remains. I'd like to close with a teaching, a very direct and profound teaching by Kala Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan meditation masters who died and has since been reborn and found. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all.
Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.